The Fake Show podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Hutchison and Stefan, the Tone Factory recording studios in Las Vegas, the Craft House Brewery, Moonshot.com, Mr. Antenna, and Banger Brewing in downtown Las Vegas. If you're busy like me, going to the video store is a hassle. With Netflix, just make a list of the movies you want to see. And in about one business day, you'll get three delivered to your house. Keep them as long as you want, without late fees. Finish one, return it in this prepaid envelope, and they'll send you another movie from your list. Can you get that? Mommy! Mommy's doing a TV commercial! Netflix. All the movies you want, 22 bucks a month, and no late fees. It's The Fake Show with Jim Tofty. Mark Randolph was the co-founder and first CEO of Netflix back in 1997. He, along with partner Reed Hastings, wanted to replicate the e-commerce model pioneered by online bookseller Amazon.com. Mark heard that brand new DVDs were being tested in several U.S. markets, and he wanted to explore the concept of selling them online. This was the very beginning phase of what is now a multi-billion dollar company. Mark's new book is called That Will Never Work, and I've got him on the line right now. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be with you. And congratulations on the book, That'll Never Work. Did someone actually say that to you guys in the beginning? Oh my gosh, I've probably heard that a thousand times, you know, from from people I was trying to convince to be my wife even, you know, told me when I told her the idea for what became Uh. Netflix, That'll Never Work. Every entrepreneur does. You guys had so many ideas, right? I mean, before the idea to do the Netflix service, I mean, what were some of the ideas that you had that you didn't do because they, you thought they were just as bad as maybe the Netflix idea? <laughs> well, you know, at that point, all I knew was that I wanted to start a business and that it had to involve selling things on the internet. And that was a pretty broad, uh, a broad, ba- a broad basket. And like, for example, one of the things was personalized shampoo by mail. In other words, dog food, dog food, it's custom formulated for your pet. Or another one was personalized (laughs) baseball bats. I mean, these are all crazy (laughs) ideas. And these are also ideas that everyone said that'll never work. Yeah. And you know what? It kind of rings true today that some of those ideas are actually kind of happening now. Oh, it's very funny to all of a sudden see these exact same things that I dreamed about way back when that people have eventually figured out how to make it work. And so I guess it wasn't such a bad idea after all. Part of what is like, it's part of what it's like being an entrepreneur is you take this idea that everyone thinks it's crazy. And for some reason, it sticks in your head. And you keep trying and you twist and you turn and you test. And lo and behold, you do figure out a way to make it work. How did you meet your partner, Reed Hastings? So uh, Reed, Reed's company acquired one of my startups. And I went to work for Reed. And luckily, Reed and I both lived in the same town and began, began carpooling to work together. So we had these daily drives of an hour each way to get to know each other. And then when, the, when Reed's company was acquired, all of a sudden, both of us were going to be on the street. And that's when I said, I'm going to fuse this time to start my next company. And Reed was going to go back and uh, try and get advanced education in education and get a further degree in education. But he wanted to keep his hand in the startup thing. And we agreed that I'd come up with an idea. We, he would fund it. I would run it. And 
off we'd go. Now, I remember the idea of, you know, getting DVDs delivered by mail was very cool, but also at the same time, Blockbuster was just around the corner. And so that was still very convenient. It was kind of a bold move on your part. You know, in some ways, it was a crazy move because you're right. At the time, there was 9,000 Blockbuster stores. I mean, most people could throw a rock and hit a Blockbuster. And so for us to think that somehow... Somebody would want to do DVD by mail and wait two days for their movie to arrive. But we had a huge advantage in that even though there was 9,000 Blockbuster stores, people hated Blockbuster. They hated late (laughs) fees. They hated the fact it was so hard to find a movie. And we hoped that by having essentially an endless aisle of movies, by having DVDs before any Blockbuster carried them, that that would be enough to at least give us a foothold to begin experimenting to try and figure out if there was, in fact, a way to actually make this crazy idea work. It's uh, true what you say, too, because I remember standing in a blockbuster for 20 minutes and coming out of there with nothing. <laughs> well, what they did was even worse, is they figured, we've got to give someone what this, this thing, this immediate gratification. And so all of us would flock like lemmings to the new release wall. But it turns out... Even though you haven't seen it, it doesn't mean it's any good. Yes. And you end up taking home garbage. And we realized from the very beginning that Netflix could not be about the best way to ship plastic, nor could it be about streaming. It had to be about fundamentally helping customers find movies or TV they loved. Then we'd be able to really take on the world, regardless of how people chose to consume their entertainment. Mark, it's fascinating to me that to be a cutting edge company like you certainly were, there weren't exactly a lot of DVD players at the time that you came up with this idea, but you were ahead of the game, certainly. Well, you know, in many ways, that will never work. The book is kind of this untold story about how Netflix is not instantly jump into 150 million people's living rooms that you have to start somewhere. And we chose to start with DVDs and you're right. Almost no one owned a DVD player. And so what we had to do was convince the DVD manufacturers to put a coupon in their box so that when someone did buy a DVD player, we were there, but this was total fish out of water. This was this guy from Silicon Valley going to the wilds of New Jersey to these huge consumer electronics companies, which were conservative, and trying to convince them to take this huge bet on this company, which was basically two months old. It was pretty long odds, and I can't believe sometimes we actually pulled this off. Yeah, you must read the book yourself and go over the words that you've written down and think, wow, that's that was really great. Well, one of the things that was so great about this book was going back and reliving those critical early years and really telling that untold story about how desperate it was sometimes, about layoffs we had to do, about times we almost ran out of money, and about the fun it was coming to work in this old bank building we had leased with dirty green carpets. We had our DVDs stored in an old safe. We did, couldn't afford furniture. Several so people bought their own chairs in from home. People were sitting on beach chairs. Wow. I mean, looking back, you go, God, that was how romantic is that? It was it was fantastic. The timeline is interesting because you walked away from it all in 2003, I believe. When did the idea for streaming videos directly to people's homes, when did that come to the company? Well, the idea came probably on day negative 10. 
In other words, we knew from the minute we shipped that first piece of plastic that eventually people would be delivering movies and TV digitally. And we had to set ourselves up to be in the right place at the right time when that happened, which was what drove that focus on finding great movies being the key. But, you know, we had to wait for a lot of things to be in the right place. You had to wait for Hollywood to be willing to release their content digitally. We had to wait for people's Internet to terminate on their television, not on their computer. We had to wait for a lot of things to be in place. But when it was, we were there. And then, of course, once we realized that to differentiate ourselves, you can't have the same old stuff. It was a natural step to doing proprietary content. How important is it now for Netflix with, you know, the increasingly competitive market with uh, companies like Apple and Disney launching their own services that you have original content? This must be very key for them, right? Yes, it's critical. I mean, all of us, all of us have that same feeling. We, you know, there's so many great things on TV, but you, some things, you, if you can get them everywhere, why bother subscribe to a certain service? You've got to have something unique that says, I do want to do Netflix, and I want to do Amazon, and I want to do Apple, or whatever the offerings are. So that proprietary content is a, um, an important piece. And I think it's great for consumers, actually. I love the fact that not only did we pioneer a business model that worked for Netflix, but we pioneered a whole different way of consuming entertainment that's created so much opportunity for, you know, for the artists, for the studios, and for all of us as consumers. Mark, you said it too, that you liked the process in the beginning of, of starting it up and, and getting it going and everything. Is that what you're doing now? Or are you helping other companies? Yeah, I, you know, I, I realized once Netflix had its IPO that I love the company, but I didn't necessarily love big company problems. I love small company problems. So now I get to come in with early stage entrepreneurs and sit around the table with them and help solve really hard problems and I've got it even better because I get to go home at five o'clock. <laughs> right. These things actually happen. Are you still friends with your former partner, Reed? Absolutely. Reed and I live in the same town. We circulate in the same friend groups. I see Reed all the time. And it's, it's great because he's doing what he loves. He loves the problems of playing this global chess game. And wow, is he doing a spectacular job. And I get to do what I love, which is work with the small companies. I mean, I'm, I'm the luckiest guy uh, you're ever going to meet. Oh, that's great. Mark Randolph's book, That'll Never Work, it's available at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. Great talking to you, Mark, and, and good luck with everything. Thanks. The reason I asked Mark if he's still friends with Drew Hastings is because early on in their venture, Hastings suggested that Mark step down as CEO and that Hastings take over the business side of things. Now, after walking away from Netflix, Mark is now mentoring other young companies where he focuses focuses on entrepreneurship, leadership, and innovation. He travels around the world as a keynote speaker talking about his experience with Netflix and the lessons that he's learned from other startup investments. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of The Fake Show. I'm Jim Tofty, and I'll see you next time. Take The Fake Show on the road by listening on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and thefakeshow.com.